Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. In the second part of the latest podcast, I had the chance to talk to Laura Foll, who is the co-manager of not one, not two, but three UK equity investment trusts managed by Janice Henderson. She's been doing that for well over a decade, works with James Henderson, who was on the podcast not so long ago. But I thought it would be a good moment to talk to Laura because she wrote an interesting article the other day, last week, talking about the UK equity market and the impact that M&A is having on the market. So, Laura, let's kick off with that, shall we? The point you were making, I think, was not just about M&A, but it was about the fact that the UK equity market remains very unloved, as we know, by lots of investors. It's been quite a slow performer. The number of M&A deals that uh, you were involved in last year is actually both a positive and a negative. I think that was the point you were trying to make. Exactly. I suppose what I was trying to get across is I, I feel that we've been left in quite a vulnerable position in the UK equity market for reasons we all know. You know sentiment is poor. There have been outflows. And it's meaning that when we get what I would class as pretty opportunistic takeover bids, that we're being picked off. That's how it feels like to me. You know, you're getting these bids come in. And I've got to be clear, you know, sometimes we're getting premiums that are fair. You know, we had Numis, for example, last year. It was taken over by Deutsche Bank. I saw the level for that. I thought, yes, that's a fair deal. You know, so not all of them are opportunistic. But there have been some... There are some that I name in the article that I feel particularly kind of aggrieved by. This is the likes of Finsbury Food, which was a, um, a cake, you know, it's not a glamorous company. It was a cakes company. It made cakes for supermarkets and that kind of thing. K3 Capital. So both of those companies have been bid for by private equity. And in both cases, the valuations that they were bid for, to me, just did not reflect the fair value of these businesses. But both got voted through. And I think what's happening is that fund managers in the UK, a lot of them are, in, are facing outflows, which puts them in quite a difficult position. A lot of them have liquidity constraints being imposed on them, particularly if they're running open-ended funds, which makes it difficult to hold the smaller cap end of the market. So there are all sorts of reasons that fund managers, I can fully understand why they are accepting these deals. But once these companies are gone, they're lost to the market, possibly forever, or they might come back in a different form in a few years' time. But for the time being, they're lost to the market. We are seeing this de-equitization, particularly at the smaller cap end of the market. And there's nothing coming in on the other side. There are pretty much no IPOs. So the market pool, if you like, in the UK is getting smaller because of these deals. So I wrote the article partly because I was almost feeling a bit guilty that I've definitely been part of the problem in a small way. And that you know, when the Finsbury food deal came through, we sold the shares before the vote. If I felt I was really sticking to my principles, we, we should have kept that holding and voted against. But the trouble was we had a long list of stocks that we wanted to buy in its place. So as soon as the bid came through, yes, you think that's not a fair value. That's not fully reflective of that company. But at the same time, as a UK fund manager, I'm sure I'm not the only person like this. You've got a long list of stocks that you want to buy. You're not getting inflows. So when you get a bid, you're quick to move on. But, but yeah. that company is now gone. And it's often the best companies that get acquired 
Yeah, well, you'd hope so, of course. That's what private equity is trying to do, of course, is trying to pick off, as you say, the ones that are most attractive. And I guess the other point is, if you are struggling in this environment where uh, UK equity market is not performing very well, it might be your only source of return over, over the course of a year. If you can get a little uplift on one or two companies, that's better than getting a very small single-digit return, which you might be otherwise getting. So it's understandable, I guess, but surely the issue here is you've got to have some more fundamental reform of the way the UK equity market works before you can stop this actually uh, continuing. Would that not be right? I, I think that's right. I don't think the fund management community has it in its power. We can only manage what we have, if you see what I mean. So the frustration I sometimes see articles saying if you get a bid at a 50% premium well why weren't all the UK fund managers invested you know this was obviously cheap and that's difficult when you see that kind of article because you think well we're all only managing the assets that we have (laughs) if there's not going to be inflows we can only allocate to so many companies and then you get these articles that sort of go oh you UK fund managers come on guys you should have spotted that this was 50% cheap and you think yes I agree but I've also got this long list over here of stocks at 50% cheap you know what do I do Um, you know we're not getting inflows so I think you're right I think there does need to be some sort of structural reform there are people much smarter than me that should say what form that should take but there are lots of what seem to me to be sensible ideas being floated whether it's stamp duty being cut, whether it's the Brit ISA idea, I think they're all sensible. But I agree that something needs to happen. It's beginning of March, isn't it, the budget? You know, I'm hopeful that something might be announced then. We were quite disappointed that nothing was announced in the autumn because I agree that there does need to be some sort of policy change. I was talking last week to uh, the manager of an Indian equity trust who used to work for Goldman Sachs, and he said he couldn't believe it when he discovered that we were still about the only country charging stamp duty on share transactions. It might have made sense back in the days of the empire or something, but it seems a little anomalous now. We are kind of rather shooting ourselves in the foot, aren't we? I agree. To me, that seems to be an obvious route to go down. To me, it seems like we're one of the only equity markets that doesn't support our domestic businesses. So, for example, the pension funds in the UK have a relatively low weighting to UK equities. That would be very unusual compared to overseas market. If you look at, for example, the Australian superannuation funds, they very much support their domestic equities. And that's why if you look at, for example, the Australian banks, they trade on very, very different multiples to how our domestic banks here would trade. So it just seems to me strange that we are not supporting our domestic equity market in the way that other countries seem to. Well, I guess the pension funds or insurance companies, they say, well, we also, it's our job, but they do have other pools they can invest in and they've performed much better, haven't they? So it's kind of uh, self-fulfilling in a way. If there were better returns from the UK equity market, then they might invest more and so on and so forth. So it's a bit of chicken and egg, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, I think the difference is, and I, I see this from the wealth management community in the UK as well, is that we seem to manage to a global benchmark. So you will hear, for example, wealth managers say, well, the UK weighting in the MSCI world is only, I think, 4 or 5%, something like that. So that's what we're managing to. And we're, you know, we're overweight because we're 6 or 7%. You think, well, that's not how <laughs> all the French or German, et cetera, wealth managers think about it. They would think, well, this is our domestic market. People have their assets here. People have their liabilities here. We have a good chunk of our equity allocation here in the UK. So I think it's almost a difference of perception that we are managing to a global benchmark rather than coming at it from a domestic focus. And I think that's had really profound consequences. You know, I often get questions of, oh, the the problem with the UK equity market is Brexit, isn't it? I think, well, no, not really. I actually think the seeds of the problem were well before Brexit. 
And actually, it was Brexit that just exposed the underlying fragility of the UK equity market because we were at the whims of foreign sentiment. And you can see that in Brexit, that if overseas investors think the UK is a higher risk market, then off they go. And that's completely within their rights. But it's, it's exposed the fragility that we don't have that domestic investor base here to prop up share price or valuations in that type of scenario. Um, so I don't think it was Brexit. I think that it was Brexit that exposed that fragility which is a question I get a lot because you can clearly see the valuation discount emerge at the point of Brexit, but I don't think Brexit was the underlying cause. Right. Well, that's an interesting comment. I think personally I might agree with that, but it seems to be becoming sustained and self-sustaining. But on the other hand, as you just said, I mean, we've had de-equitization. We've lost quite a lot of small companies in the last few years, significant number actually of companies, but you're still saying there are lots of things out there which you're happy to buy because they look attractive on valuation grounds. So in a way... That should be an opportunity because at some point this must turn, mustn't it, do you think? Or if it requires structural reform, eventually, I, I dare say, the government and others will get around to dealing with it. But you're, in the meantime, you're, any investor who's looking at valuations says, this looks cheap, I'm going to be rewarded in due course. Uh, but it just hasn't happened so far. I think that's right. And I think that's what I'm challenged on the most in that if I sit here and say most of our portfolio PEs are 10 times or below which on a historic basis is considerably below the long run average, say a 10 year average. So it's hard to argue with the valuation, but that's just a fact. You know, the valuations are below where they've been historically. I think the challenge that I get the most is, well, you said that to me a year ago. (laughs) You said that to me two, three years ago. And it's still the case now and it hasn't changed. And while we are getting these takeovers, um, in some cases opportunistic, in some cases not, the underlying valuation hasn't changed. If anything, it's, it's probably derated over the last couple of years. So what can change that? We've spoken a bit about policy initiatives. It might be that. It might be that this time, say 18 months ago, we thought the UK would be in steep recession last year. And it wasn't. I'm not saying the UK economy is growing strongly. Clearly it isn't. But equally, it wasn't in deep recession. You know, we're probably talking about an economy that's flatlining, roughly. You know, we can argue about the sort of 0.1, 0.2 here or there, but it's basically flatlining um, rather than in recession. So I think, you know, the other catalyst could be that actually the consumer is back in real wage growth, looks like consumer confidence, business confidence are ticking up from low levels. So if you can get to a stage where people think actually the portfolio is on 10 times earnings or below, and those earnings don't feel they're about to lurch down, then you can have confidence that that valuation is the real number. Because that's the other question I often get, well, you know, you say the portfolio is on 10 times 12 month historic, or whatever the number is, but isn't that earnings number about to half. Now, I really don't think that's the case, but that is the other pushback that I get on saying the portfolio is lowly valued, that there is a risk around the economy. And I'm not sitting here saying the UK economy is growing well. I just don't think the end market backdrop is as challenging as the narrative or the valuation would imply. So I think that could be the other potential catalyst. But I often say that actually trying to point to a catalyst is a bit of a fool's errand. (laughs) But if I were to try and sort of have a guess... I think it could be one of those two things, policy changes or just the the narrative about the economy feeling a bit different. Yeah, I mean, the way that capitalism is meant to work is that uh, that should rectify itself in due course, unless there are some fundamental structural issues, which we just mentioned. So 
On the other hand, you could say, well, for many years, people were saying we've got the AIM market. You know, the AIM market has done extraordinarily well. Nobody else in the world, apart from the US, has got such a good market for younger companies. A tax advantage is there. But the AIM market has been dreadful over the last few years as well, after having a very good run. So what do you think is happening there? Is there any specific factors why AIM is doing particularly badly at the moment compared to the main market, which has also been pretty stodgy and dull? You're right that AIM has been very challenging over the last couple of years. I don't think it's necessarily an AIM problem. I think it's a small cap problem. But the challenge is you don't see it. And for example, the FTSE small cap index is pretty much investment trusts these days. There's very few operating companies in there. So people look at the FTSE small cap index, they go, well, that's not doing so badly. Well, that's because it's effectively a geared play on the market because you've got so many investment trusts in there. Most of them use gearing. So it looks like that index is doing okay. (laughs) But actually, if you look at the operating companies in there, that has been more challenged, like AIM. For me, I often get questions, well, how much do you have on AIM and how much do you have in the FTSE small cap? I don't really think of things that way. I think of it as the small cap end of the market and there's not too much of a difference between the two. And both have been challenged. And I think it comes down to the same reasons for the UK equity market as a whole, but in a more extreme way. And what I mean by that is, If sentiment towards the domestic economy is weak, well, which are the most exposed companies to the domestic economy? The smaller ones. You can show very clearly that as you go down the market cap scale, the exposure to the UK goes up and up and up, with the FTSE 100 being the most international and the opposite at the smaller end. So the sentiment towards domestic UK has much more of an impact at the small cap end. Also, all the liquidity pressures are felt most acutely at the smaller cap end. So if you are a fund manager and you are running a UK fund and you're in outflows, that's not necessarily a problem if you are running a fund of Glaxo's. You know, you can use that position. You can just put on a pro rata trade across the whole portfolio and it's not necessarily a problem. If you're running a more small cap focused fund and you're trying to manage outflows, that's much more challenging and you're more likely to disturb the prices of those holdings. And I think you can really see that at the small cap end of the market, that people are exiting holdings Going right back to the beginning, that's that's partly why these bids are being accepted. That people think, oh, cash, you know, I can exit that holding, and they and they might be facing outflows. So I don't think it's a specific problem on AIM. I just think that the small cap end of the market is where all of these pressures are really being felt at the most extreme level. So I can understand why the government, when you hear the types of policies they're thinking, I can often sort of sense that they're trying to direct their efforts towards the small cap end of the market because that's where the pain is being felt most acutely. You know, the most extreme valuation discount is at that end of the market. That's that's what I think needs addressing if they can. And what about the IPO drought? Because you often you would be contacted by brokers or promoters of new issues coming to you. Sound like what's going on? Is it there's simply just a lack of possibles coming along? There's still a lot of new company formation and so on. What's been the trend? That's dried up as well completely, has it? Or is it just the fact that once you can't get the IPO off the ground, even if you're interested in the company? What's been your experience there? It does definitely remain very quiet. I always judge the IPO pipeline by how many packs I've got on my desk. And at the moment, I have no packs on my desk. (laughs) So there you go. In terms of what's halting it, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, the round of IPOs that came in 2021 in the UK I'm sure someone will now email you telling you, but I'm struggling to think of any that did well. So the recent experience of IPOs in the UK was very poor. That round of IPOs, if you think of things like, I think the Hub Group was that year, you know, ones like that have been, or May.com, you know, 
gone. Neither of those we bought, by the way, but that round of IPOs was, was very poor and that's still fresh in people's minds. And then I also think there's a bit of a standoff happening with private equity will at some stage need to make some realisations of things they've bought, but the interest rate environment is different. And so people on our side of the fence are going, no, that's not the valuation that I want. And they're going, no, but but we want this valuation. <laughs> and there has to be some sort of compromise at some point. But at the moment, that doesn't appear to be being reached. So we're saying we want one level and they're saying we want another level. And then those IPOs just aren't happening. But at some point, they will need to make exits. And so some compromise will need to happen somewhere. But it's not happening yet. So if we look at your portfolio now, one of your portfolios, they're very similar. one of the points that occurred to me, though, is, I mean, you have just looking at Lowland, for example, which is one of the trusts that you're involved in the management of, you have migrated towards having a greater smaller cap percentage in there over the last period, I think, because you have an all cap mandate. So you could invest in the top end of the market as well. And you're overweight in smaller companies. So if you actually feel this way about the market, do you think that's consistent or should you not be reversing that particular trend? And making the problem worse, of course. But uh, would that not be logical? There's a competitive fund management market. So what we've been doing in the income funds, I'm talking here about Lowland and, and Lord Venture, is moving down the market cap scale, but slowly. So if we take Lowland as an example, Lowland over the very long run would have about a third in smaller companies. Until quite recently, it actually had 50% in large companies, which is very unusual for Lowland. You know, I couldn't remember a time when Lowland was sort of knocking up against 50% in the FTSE 100. That's very unusual. That helped relative performance, but not enough. Because actually, the UK market has become so concentrated in the FTSE 100. The FTSE 100 is now roughly 85% of the all-share index. So while we had 50%, we were actually still very underweight large companies. So... It's a bit confusing. It helped versus where we are historically, but it still wasn't enough because larger companies have outperformed a lot. We're now moving back down towards smaller companies. We now have more like low 40s in the FTSE 100, but it's still higher than it has been over the very long run. So we're moving that direction, but we are doing it slowly because we recognise that we could have done this at any point in the last five, six years, and it would have been the wrong direction to go. So timing these things is very difficult. But we are moving that way because we think this is where the value is clearest, but recognising that we might be early. And I've tried to guess at a couple of catalysts, but catalysts are very, very hard to get right. So slowly, gradually, but we are value investors at the end of the day. And that is where we think the value is clearest at the moment. I think the reason I'm sort of sounding a bit hedged is I don't think the large cap end of the UK market is particularly egregiously valued, but I don't think that at all. If I look at things like Glaxo compared to some global pharma peers, I find it pretty easy to argue the case for some of these large cap companies as well. But it's about relative extremes. And I think the small cap end ticks that box more clearly. But when I hear large cap focused UK fund managers argue the case for Burberry, the LSE, whatever it is, I can see the logic. That was for your equity income mandates in terms of a different approach. Funds where you actually got a bigger focus on uh, capital gains or total return, whatever you like to call it. Uh, is that any different there? Is that the same story there? Henderson Opportunities Trust doesn't have an income remit. It's in the all companies sector rather than the income sector. That is much more aim focused. That's got 45 roughly, I think actually, I think it's 42, 43% on aim. And just being upfront has had a tougher time because of that. You know, the aim market, as we spoke about, has been very challenging. Now, I don't think actually the operational performance of those companies is reflected in the valuation. I sit and have meetings here and people go, well, what's what's happened? What's wrong with this company? Think, well, actually, the operating performance has been fine. 
but the valuation has completely changed in the last couple of years. So I think HOT and the performance of HOT and the valuation of the companies in HOT is the most extreme reflection of smaller company sentiment and how smaller companies have performed. But I think when I look at the list of companies within it, a lot of them are actually very substantial businesses that are growing well, that aren't, you know, there's a perception of AIM that it's very high risk and very speculative. And some companies are like that on AIM, of course. But there are also businesses on AIM that are, give you an example, something like Sigma Rock. It's a building materials company. You know, it's on AIM because it likes to do deals. It's a buy and build strategy. But it's, you know, it's a market leader in several countries in aggregates. It's, it's not particularly speculative. But the valuation of that business is very, very different to where it was a couple of years ago. So that's what's happened with HOT. AIM has been very, very challenging, but I don't think the underlying company fundamentals are reflected in the valuation of those businesses. So cheer us up a little bit by giving us a couple of examples of companies that you really like and where you actually think you will get exceptional returns from over the next uh, period. So I guess the first thing to say is anything I say is not an investment recommendation. I've always got to couch talking about individual stocks with that because I can sometimes sound too enthusiastic and it's not a recommendation. I think the problem with picking a couple of favourite stocks is for all of the portfolios that we run. Hot is 80, 85 odd stocks. Lowland is 100 stocks. Lord Deb is 150 stocks. So just to sort of couch that, we are not running shortlist high conviction funds. We are holding these stocks because we think on balance of probability, they are too cheap. Let me give you an example of that. Something like IDS, which is International Distribution Services, much better known as Royal Mail. I'm putting it out there because it always raises an eyebrow when I talk about Royal Mail because it is one of the least liked stocks, I think, in the UK market. So why do I like it? I think that the European business, GLS, which has been built up over time, partly organically, partly inorganically, is a good business. It makes a sort of high single digit margin. It grows most years fairly well. If you put that on a competitor type valuation multiple, you get more than the market cap of Royal Mail. In other words, I think the UK business of Royal Mail is in there for less than zero. Now, you could argue that that is fair in a way because the UK business has been loss making. So why shouldn't it be in there for less than zero would be a very fair question. The management are saying that they think it's now getting towards break-even, hopefully heading towards profitability. It is the market leader in the UK. It should be capable of making some money. If it can do that, it shouldn't be worth zero. They also own a lot of property. They've got a huge site near where I'm talking to you from in Farringdon. They've got a massive site. They've got a lot of surplus property. They own a ton of vehicles that they use for a couple of hours a day. I think you could argue that that business shouldn't be in there at zero. Now, that is a deep value argument and one that not a lot of people agree with me on. <laughs> but I'll put that out there. We own that in Lowland and Lordeb. That's one we're, we're pretty keen on. I've mentioned Sigma Rock. That currently doesn't pay a yield, so it's only in Lord Venture and Hot. It's a building materials company. It's grown over time, but it's grown via acquisitions, which sometimes makes people nervous. It does have debt on its balance sheet. That, again, makes people a bit nervous. But it's pretty cash generative. In fact, it's very cash generative. So it should be able to pay down that debt relatively quickly, all being well. It's building materials so you can like the fact that it's tangible. <laughs> you know, with things like AI, it's actually quite difficult sometimes to talk about technology companies because well, maybe it's just me, but I feel like you're constantly afraid of them being leapfrogged at the moment. So you think you have the leading edge in something and actually it's leapfrogged again. So it's hard to put a valuation multiple on that. Something like Sigma Rock 
you know, building materials, I feel like I can get a decent sense of what that business is worth. And I don't think it should be you know, six, seven times earnings. So something like that, I think um, as the debt hopefully gets paid down, people feel more comfortable with it for that reason. I can see the argument for something like that. I could go on. I mean, I could make a case for so many different companies in the portfolio. But in a way, the challenge is differentiating because there's so many different ones where you can say, well, that's on mid-signature earnings or I think that's in there at zero. You know, it is quite challenging. But those, those are two completely different sizes of business that I'll sort of throw out there. Very good. So that was Laura Fall, the co-manager of a number of Janice Henderson Investment Trusts. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.